Amen. What a joy to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, what an incredible time we've had. Uh, sorry I couldn't bring my, my second shirt last night, uh, but I thought I'd bring it uh, this morning. Uh, <laughs> Got to save it for the right moments. It is... Uh, it is my absolute joy to, to be speaking this morning, and I've been given just the most incredible brief um, to, to speak on the passage that we're familiar with already, uh, but the particular part is in verse two, and so um, let's just jump straight in because uh, I'm so excited about what we're about to see and, and hear together. So here we go, verse two, uh, picking up on this idea of the race and the witnesses we are called to do this, to look or to looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What a stunning verse of assurance. Jesus is both, two things here, the founder of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, or in the New King James, if you like, the author and the finisher of our faith. In this verse, we are given insight into both God's divine initiative, he is the giver of faith, the author, and also God's intention with that faith, and that is to complete it, right? Both the founder and the perfecter. This is a soteriological slam dunk text, isn't it? This is what cage stage Calvinists have locked and loaded for online debates. This is a wonderful text. It's a rich text. But I also want to say I think there's some irony in this particular phrase. This idea, the slam dunk text of the assurance of salvation, of the perseverance of the saints. And where is it found? In Hebrews. The one book that is often used to undermine or challenge this very idea of the perseverance of the saints. And no doubt we know that there are warnings. There are warnings throughout the book. There is this real sense in which we are confronted with this idea that, that can Christians actually fall away? Can, can Christians actually lose their salvation? And John MacArthur would remind us that if we could, we would. But that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is this the case? If Jesus is the author and finisher, then what are we to make of these warnings? Which there are many of. Many, many warnings. And we know, as we've already heard, that this book was written to first century Jews, uh, written by Paul, according to Rory, and by the way, according to Spurgeon. Ah, there we go. The great Spurge has spoken. But these first century Jews who converted to Christianity are wavering in their faith. They are wavering in their faith. They're considering turning back to Judaism and old covenant practices. And so he's writing to them to warn them and to show them the supremacy of Christ. And that's what I wanna do with us this morning. I want us to look Together, I don't want to just tell you to look to Jesus. I want us to actually together for the next, I think, 15 minutes, hopefully, uh, for us actually to look at Jesus together and to go with the author 
uh, to, to journey with the author to actually beholding the wonder of Jesus. And then to come to the conclusion of what do we make with these warnings? What, what are we to do with these warnings? And so what we actually find throughout the book of Hebrews is a wonderful ebb and flow of both wonder and warning. And there is this wonderful ebb and flow that we are to go on to, to behold Christ, or to behold the superiority of Jesus, but also to be warned about forsaking him. And I want to suggest that as part of my thesis this morning is that these two things actually work beautifully together. They are not a challenge to our soteriology. They are not a contradiction of terms. They actually are both a wonderful means of grace to our lives. And so the first one is framed positively. We're going to be looking at the wonder of looking at Jesus and, uh, and the author uses a wonderful literary feature called the lesser to the greater. And we're going to just dig deep into that. And the second is framed negatively, and that is the warning of drifting from Jesus. And so turn with me. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to have a look together at Hebrews chapter 1, one of the most important passages on the supremacy of Jesus. And so let's join the apostle in beholding Jesus. The first thing that we see here he opens with eight declarations, eight declarations of the supremacy of Christ. And the first one is he says that Jesus is God's final prophet. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The first thing Paul does, if it's Paul, is contrast two stages of divine revelation, moving from the piecemeal, fragmentary revelation of Old Testament prophecy to God's full and final revelation through his own son, literally the word becoming flesh. And the point of this opening is that this idea of progressive revelation is that it has progressed and there is no more progression. There is no need for more revelation. We have it in Christ. God's son has spoken and God's son still speaks. And specifically, he's revealing and showing that it is superior to previous revelation. He's the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. God's word through his son is his final will and testament. No new prophet is needed, capital P. No new prophet is necessary, for we have all that we need for salvation in Jesus and his word. There's so much more we could say, but we've got to get through eight. Secondly, what we see is that Jesus is the heir of all things. He goes on and says, through whom he, uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, we've heard a bit about this, but this was in response to his perfect obedience. Not only is he speaking, but he is perfectly obeyed on our behalf. He's the perfect obedient son, and he's the perfect sacrifice. And for that, he's been rewarded with an enormous inheritance, all things, an inheritance among all nations, not just one nation. Jesus, the picture here is, is that Jesus has everything in his hands needed to save us. 
Just imagine for a minute, imagine a doctor on, on board a boat, let's say a big shipping vessel or a luxury cruise. A doctor on a, on a boat has a sick man before him and, uh, and he has to say to the man, listen, I think I could cure you if I could get such and such a medicine. But unfortunately, you know, we're on a boat, I can't get the drug, it's not within my reach. Well, the good news is that never ever will the great physician of our souls have to talk like that because all things have been committed to him. All things necessary for our salvation are in his hands. Wow. Thirdly, Jesus is co-creator, heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Isn't this marvelous that he who created all things is also our savior? There is no need to doubt whether he is now able to create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. There is no need to doubt whether we can actually be new creations because he, our savior, is the co-creator our Savior is creator of the world. You can trust Him. Never doubt His ability to turn darkness into light. Never, never doubt His ability to make dry bones live. Never doubt His ability to finish the work He starts. He goes on, Jesus is God revealed, verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I don't know about you, but I, I, this is fun, isn't it? Looking to Jesus together. The Nicene Creed reminds us, we are talking here of God of God, light of light, very God of very God. In other words, there is no glory in God that is not also in Christ. He is the exact image revealed. It's almost like throughout the Old Testament, God was sending sketches of himself, but now we see fully and finally. What a comfort, church, friends, leaders, pastors, to know that, that he who came to save us is God himself. And because what we see is that because Jesus is God, because Jesus is divine, therefore there are no impossibilities with him. Our Savior is divine, therefore there are no obstacles with him. He is able to save because no one is beyond the reach of omnipotence. He is God. He's also Lord of history, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He moves from showing us and talking to us about the person of Jesus now to the power of Jesus. Just think of it. If Christ was not upholding this world by his word, it would drift back into nothingness from where it came. There is not a being in history who has existed independently of Jesus. 
And if Christ upholds heaven and earth, he can uphold you and me. He can sustain us. He's Lord of history. Sixth, Jesus is God's final priest. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. We move now from what Jesus does continually, sustaining all things, to what he did once for all. He paid for our sins, made purification, done, fully, finally, finished. He who upholds the universe continually stooped to bear our sins. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus purged us of our sins even before we had committed them? And how did he do it? We may ask, how did he accomplish this? Through his preaching, through, through his doctrine, through his example? No, by his own blood, by himself. His blood was the price and the payment. I think it is inconceivable that he would lose any of those which his blood has bought. Revelation 5 verse 9, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. He bought us. We are his possession. Seventh, Jesus is God's final king and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus as priest satisfies God's justice and then he sits down as king. Isn't that interesting? A seated king. Think with me. I think what the author is trying to show us here is an accomplishment, a finished work, a sense in which as God rested, now Christ rests, having finished the purchase of his new creation. Jesus sits now in the place of honor, but also he now occupies the place of safety. No one can hurt him now. No one can deny him. No one can defeat his will. He is now enthroned as king. And so his cause is safe, amen? His kingdom is forever and his children are secure. This king shall never be defeated or disappointed. <laughs> what a king, what a king. And finally, Jesus is our mediator. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what the author does now is he goes on a, a long push. I think there were some issues in the church regarding angels and their mediation. and Maybe early, I won't say it. 
But what we see here is that seven Old Testament references are given to the superiority of Jesus and the finality of Jesus as being the only mediator. Let's just read them for what they are from verse five. I haven't got them all here because we don't have all day. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Verse six, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse eight, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Church leaders, friends, what is the natural conclusion having looked at Jesus in Hebrews chapter one? I would submit to you that it is that he is to be worshiped as creator, mediator, sustainer, ruler, redeemer, prophet, priest, and king. There is no doubt in my mind that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And if, and if you're not feeling fulfilled or satisfied or secure in your faith in Jesus, I would wanna say to you, as I think this author is saying to those early century Christians, it's not because you tried Jesus and he wasn't enough. He is enough. But that's why we must look to him and never stop looking to him which is the very next thing we hear. Isn't it interesting that the whole of Hebrews 1, there are no commands for the church. No commands whatsoever. It's just behold the wonder of Jesus. But he continues. The argument and the flow of the text actually goes into chapter 2 and the whole of chapter 1, which is gushing with awe and wonder of who Jesus is, the first thing we see in chapter two, verse one, is a warning, a command. The author himself is not afraid of warnings. Obviously, that's very obvious. But you would think that the two would be opposed to each other. But actually what we see in verse one here is that he's basing his entire argument of the wonder of Jesus and then leveraging that to say, be warned. Be warned. Let's have a look at it. Verse one in chapter two, it says, therefore, there's a few of these, we must pay much closer attention. In light of all that we have seen, The wonder and the warning work together. There is no contradiction. There is no undermining of our assurance. This is a means of grace. And so let's read on. Therefore, here's the warning. Don't drift from Jesus. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard Everything we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is an urgency here. Must pay much closer attention. We need to guard the primacy and the purity and the priority of the gospel. It is our responsibility. The life and the teachings of Jesus Christ must be taken seriously and must be felt as weighty. He hasn't left behind the argument from lesser to greater, has he? Because this is, this is his point. If the, if the issue of neglect and disobedience was punishable under the old covenant, he carries on and he says, then how much more now under the full revelation of Christ in the new covenant? As my friend Matt Johnson said, we, we don't have a different God here from the old to the new. How did you frame it? We're not soft Marcians, Marcionites. What does he mean here in verse three when he says, how shall we escape? Is this a threat to our salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great, not average, but great salvation? Well, I think the context already answers the question, and that is, there is no escape. <laughs> there is no escape. If you drift past Jesus, there's nothing left. What have we got? A club. Some friends. If we drift past Jesus Christ, this is his argument to these first century Jewish converts who are considering leaving Christ. And he says, listen, without him there is nothing left. If you turn your back or if you look away from Jesus, there is no safety, no security, and no salvation. Now notice the, 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 the author here is actually more concerned not with outright rejection. We know people will outrightly reject the gospel. But actually he's concerned about drifting. A slow and steady neglect. And we all know people that this has happened to. There's been no urgency. There's been no vigilance. And the result is not that they stand still, the text tells us, but actually they drift away. See, the gospel, Jesus Christ, can't be sidestepped. He's not peripheral. We can't be casual and we can't be complacent about it because to drift past Christ is to lose everything. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. And so these warnings are given to the visible church. These warnings are given to the visible church, which is both regenerate and unregenerate. And because they are given to both, they serve two purposes. When the Christians hear these warnings, what do we do? We hear the voice of our shepherd. These warnings are the voice of the shepherd in our ears, and we are compelled to persevere. 
We are reminded of the glory and the wonder of Jesus. And we are convicted against drifting. And we pursue him again. But for the unbeliever, he doesn't hear the voice of Christ in the warning. And he begins to drift and over time fall away and in so doing show that they've been trusting in something else other than Christ all along. There never was a founder in the first place. And so I want to close with some more thoughts with this idea of the danger of drifting. What are some of the distractions that can cause us to, to drift, to start moving away? And I think we could go in so many directions, <laughs> and I really needed to ask God to help me here, because we could talk about all sorts of things. But I felt like that the issue for the very first hearers was a combination of two things. If you, if you think about those early Jewish converts, I think that the, the pressure point for them was a combination of entrenched Jewish theology, how Jesus is now conflicting with all of that historical theology, who he is, the Messiah, is he really the Messiah? But also it was this combination of theology and culture, Jewish culture, and that combination, I think, is partly our greatest threat in some ways. There are good things that can cause us to drift. And there are cultural issues that could cause us to drift. I mean, I think some of our own convictions we can get too caught up in especially secondary issues. I'm not talking about Hebrews 1 issues. I'm talking about secondary issues. You know, are we really reformed or are we nearly reformed? Or whatever it might be, we could get caught up in novelty theologies. But I think that what we are seeing in our age, in this cultural moment, is a horrible, I use that word, it's not a great word, but I do think it's a horrible blending of theology and culture. And there's no Jewishness to it, but there is a secular heart behind it. Some have called it progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. I mean, how did we get there? And some have got there through deconstructing, somehow reconstructing, how convenient that it's so comfortable. There's no threat, no challenge, no sense of transcendence. I'm at the center of it all. This merging of, of Christianity, Christian theology with cultural ideologies, I think is one of our greatest distractions and threats. Individualism prioritized over the community. Skewed theological ideologies like universalism 
And then the obvious onslaught on our families with sexual confusion. How, how did we get to this point? And I would like to suggest that the drift is subtle. And the drift happens further upstream. And it flows down. And the danger is, I think we're a little bit even late. Because in some ways, we have lost our voice. It starts with an upstream undermining of the authority of Scripture. In the church. We're not even talking about people outside of the church. You know, the, the, think, the thinking is we're simple Christians. We don't really need to be concerned about theology. Love is all we need. I mean, I'm even hearing things like, you know, all you need to do is believe. And there is wonderful truth in that, but that's not the whole truth. Jesus said, repent and believe. Where's repentance? Where's, where's this calling out of, of sin? I mean, we can do it in a better way. I think we haven't always done that well, but we can't throw that out. It's, it's part, of, part and parcel of the gospel is repent and believe. It's so easy for people to, I mean, many people just think, well, okay, flip, I can carry on and all I have to do is add belief. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we must repent and believe. And the, what, we, what we're needing is courage again. Courage for our churches, courage for our teams, courage for our families. Do you, know, do you know why the apostles were persecuted? Not because they believed the gospel, but because they preached the gospel. And we need to speak again. Our faith is not a private faith. Yes, there's a devotional, personal element, but it's a faith for communities. It's a faith for families. It is a public faith. It's a kingdom. And this is a call. It's a warning for us to behold Christ, but also to proclaim him in his fullness. To beware of the drift. I mean, instead of the text actually tells us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles, that clings so closely. I mean, looking to Jesus is also about looking at our own hearts and seeing the sinfulness of our lives and confessing that. But instead of laying aside sin, what we're seeing is churches redefining sin, setting aside sins that so easily offend. And so my prayer for us is that we would see the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus and we would be convicted that he is worth proclaiming, not just believing in, but in proclaiming for the sake of our churches, for the sake of our communities, and for the sake of our families. Listen, our families are under huge attack. 
There's a nice 80s charismatic word. Spiritual attack. But it's true. And the pressure's coming from the outside of the church and it's coming from the inside. And our children, if we don't find our voice again and we begin to speak on these issues, well done, common ground, on being bold enough and courageous enough to do the series you've just done, may we all find that same courage. I'm convinced that what we need is not a new message or a new strategy, but a new posture of courage to love and to speak truth, even if they hate us. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your reminder. You are all we have and all we need. The first and the last. The unchanging one. Jesus, the heir of all things. The sustainer of all things. Jesus, you are our founder and our perfecter. Jesus, you are sufficient. And we pray that you would flood our hearts again with fresh courage to make much of Jesus, to be warned, to be corrected, to be convicted, but to be freshly commissioned to go and to proclaim the truth. And as we do that, we trust you that light would penetrate darkness, that dead bones would rise again, and that hearts that are hard would be softened by your grace. You are the only one who could do it. And so we want people to hear your voice, the voice of the shepherd, loud and clear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrea.